So, Hamburger Jewish Thought, Volume 1, page 155, footnote 33. A prophet and his sign are considered as two witnesses. Therefore, some authorities maintain that two prophets can attest to each other's veracity without any other sign. Wow. I literally put in the margin uh, John 115. Luke seven twenty six. Oh, that's and good. also John ten thirty eight. Because nice. before Yeshua actually even did anything, Yochanan was already next to the Yarden talking about, yeah, this is the one who comes after me. This is one who's greater than me. I'm not worthy to tie a shoe, like all of that. And mm -hmm. then the other part I was going to go to as far as you know, how do we look at eight four? you know, about he must give a sign to demonstrate uh, that he is bearing a message from God. Well, the other thing that's supposed to happen is actually the uh, the prophet is supposed to go before the Sanhedrin. And um, where is that at? Let's see here. And Matt, what um, book are you referring to when you said Eight four. Oh, this is Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume One. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I I cannot stress enough how much people should own these books because just about any of the questions we generally ask within these two books, they really bring down a lot of sources. I know uh, Rabbi Kaplan speaks from a very biased position on a lot of things and a very Christian phobe phobia type position. But he still does a good job of delivering the content uh, that would be crucial to answer a lot of our questions. It's uh, page 156, 821, that says, however, for a prophet to be accepted by all Israel, he must produce a sign before the Sanhedrin and be tested by them. So here's the okay. other thing. Not all prophets have to be accepted by all Israel. Um, Matt, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Matt, okay. So, what is the situation with um, Yohanan who sent somebody to ask if Yeshua was really the one? If he yeah. was prophesying about him. What happened on his mind there? What happened there? Amalek. I never know how. Amalek. Um, because remember, at this point, you know, if a lot of what the general thought was wanting from the Mashiach was the Ben David, they were wanting people to deliver them from the the oppression, do the whole victory over the nations thing, bring us back into independency. Which, in order for us to really maintain our monarchy, our uh, Sanhedrin, we have to have autonomous rule, like, over Israel itself. At this time, Rome controlled everything. So it wasn't like we could, like, set mm -hmm. up our king, start our temple service, and do it exactly how it's supposed to be in the Torah. It was really, like, we're mm -hmm. still under Rome. And, by the way, this was the heading into exile, which was the undefined time. You know, you go to the ladder of Jacob and you see how all of the exiles, you know, the angels went up the ladder and they failed at a certain point. So when the uh -huh. Edom angel went up, 
he never failed, you know? And so it was like, is this ever going to end? And that's the other thing mm-hmm. is the, the Roman exile actually began before Yeshua was born because it flowed out of the Greek uh, exile to Yvonne. Because mm-hmm. when, we, when we had the Hanukkah miracle happen, the Hajmanians actually kept a hold of the throne of David. So therefore, you know, we didn't actually go and do what we were supposed to do. And King Herod rose and he wiped that whole house out. So the people who were main parts of the victory of Hanukkah ended up failing and casting us back into exile. And then from King Herod was the whole like Rome, like upsurgence. So they, uh, we actually reached out to Rome to actually help us with all of our infighting that we were doing. And they began the station and post, you know, generals and governors and things like that. And uh, so now, you know, Rome is like, oh, sure, we'll help you with big smiles on their face. They're like, we're going to take this over, you know, and ultimately 130 CE or a little bit before they really showed their face on that. And that began even greater depths into the exile. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is that technically when Yeshua showed up, that could have counted as enough time for the exile. Because, you know, we're always expecting the Mashiach and he has to come at the conclusion of the exile of Edom or somewhere in the middle, right before the end, because he comes at the 6,000, if not before. Right. So there's a whole aspect to where Yochanan is his cousin. Yochanan knows, like, without a reasonable doubt, I know this, this, he has to be the Mashiach. Like, we had the whole thing. We were in each other's, uh, each other's mother's wombs. We leaped when we saw each other. We saw what was happening at the birth. You know, we see, you know, how we were raised up and things like that. All the things that Hashem has done to highlight, you know, this is the Mashiach. And I'm sitting here in a dungeon about to get my head chopped off. I just need some reassurance, (laughs) you know, because that's how it is. We go go through this every week, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. hopefully not every week, but at least within a 40 day period. Something happens in our lives that really tests the fabric of our Imuna and Hashem. It's just like, man, I don't know. Like, I thought yeah. because I'm Jewish, I thought because I'm Torah observant, I thought because I studied the Parsha, I thought because I prayed about this, like, this wouldn't be bad. And Hashem is like, well, it's not bad as you say it's bad. This is actually a test, you know? <laughs> or, or, you know, let's make some atonement for some things you've done in the past that you don't even know about, you know? And it's just yeah. kind of one of those things where, Yeshua was like, he stood up for Yochanan. You know, he actually gave mm-hmm. a whole honor a speech, you know, about how amazing Yochanan is. In other words, the takeaway being, don't doubt Yochanan because he's doubting me. You know, <laughs> he's human. He's going yeah. through things. He's about to die. Why would you not have <laughs> second thoughts come to your mind? And remember, Amalek yeah. attacked us at our highest point. We just went through the mm-hmm. Yom Suf. And like Hashem is all like, I got you guys. You're not thirsty. You're not hungry. You got plenty of clothes. I'm, I'm like literally highlighting the word yeah. to you, like in your face all day. And we're like, you know what? Is Hashem with us? And he's like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then it's like in Purim, right? Like a- yeah, this, yeah. this happens. It's to like in Purim. Yeah, we all think like we look at Purim. We think that was it. There it is. The redemption came, but they still stayed 
under the Ahasuerus ruling for a, a long time, True. right? It's not like it, it came, the redemption came and everybody was free and the world changed or anything. They still stay there, right? Right. Yeah, and remember the whole Purim story was birthed out of us celebrating that Hashem didn't redeem us from Babylon. Yeah, enjoy the one. Mm -hmm. And nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, the there's a whole tractate of Talmud. I don't remember what it was on top of my head, but uh two of the kings are actually going back and forth about when the 70 years concluded. Both of them were wrong, by the way. And uh, one of them was just like, you know what? Fine. I win. Anyway, I'll just start throwing a party. And that ended up being King Akashverosh. So uh, between him and another guy who were arguing about those uh, particular points of the end of the Babylonian exile, um, there was a whole thing about what started Purim. But yeah, the whole point of just bringing all that up is to say that uh, Yokanon doubting and really seeking to inquire, I mean, that's that's another level of, you know, even prophets themselves, you know, can be brought to a point of struggle. And it, it's amazing to understand that the people we look up to in the Bible, they're superheroes, but they also have hurts and pains like we do. You know, and this was another thing with understanding mm -hmm. how Mashiach is not Hashem is another big thing because Shabbat Shalom. Because knowing that when he went through the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he had to bend his desires to the will of Hashem. He had to literally walk through that process of, I don't want to die. I want to preserve myself. And Hashem was like, no, you're the Ben Yosef. You have to die. Which is <laughs> crazy to think that we get Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane after countless times of him telling his child Medine, okay, son, a man's going to be handed over. He's going to die. Okay, I just need to let y'all know some things before I leave because I'm about to die. He says all this and then it comes to the time and he's like, well, you know, if this cup could pass, that'd be great. You know? And it's like, wait a minute. Is this two different Yeshua's? You know? But it's just uh, another point of the things that we actually all are, are challenge with sometimes and even the prophets themselves face that the Mashiach himself was able to face that and so it's one of those things that Bezrat Hashem encourages us you know they're not these indestructible superheroes that have no weaknesses you know which means we're actually able to do the same things that they're doing you know it, it really points out uh it's I think it's the the Lubavitcher Rebbe who, uh, who says the Mashiach could be anyone. It could be anyone in this generation. You know, and he was, the, he was really the one that was really encouraging everyone to really operate as if you are the Mashiach. Because that's how attainable it is on, on a particular level, all of us being in the likeness of the Mashiach. So uh, hopefully that answers that point. And to get back to uh, Yeshua being uh, shown as a valid prophet even before he gave a sign, Yochanan himself at the Jordan is one thing. The other thing is the, the mikvah of the Mashiach and how the, the clouds opened, the, the Ruach descended upon him like a dove, all of that. That was a whole public thing where a bot coal 
actually spoke, you know, and testified to who he was. So that would be another thing, not necessarily that he did a sign himself, but uh, after that, that's when he goes into the wilderness to be tempted uh, to tacoon for the 40, uh, the 40 years in the wilderness, also the 40 days from the time we say we will do and we will hear to when we built the golden calf. Like that whole section of Yeshua in the wilderness is tacooning a lot of things because we know the 40 days correspond to the 40 years. This is why the spies were in the land for 40 days. And Hashem was like, that's plenty of time because if they stay longer, that means they're going to have to stay in the wilderness longer. So let's get them in and out. <laughs> you know, so Yeshua even tacoons for the spies, you know, going into the land. And, you know, yeah. I'm still I'm still stuck from the very first thing you said about the prophet has to be uh, should pro prophesy to the Sanhedrin. To right. The Sanhedrin first. And, you know, it's interesting who always comes up on the scene, especially even when Yochanan is preaching. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, this is really the Sanhedrin investigating if this event is kosher or not. They weren't there just to be jerks. They're actually saying, let's go check if this is legit or not. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like a beautiful, like a double message that's going on that not only are they there to really spy on him and report back to Rome, but they're also acting members as uh, delegates of the Sanhedrin for him to actually uh, witness to. And, you know, there was a miracle that happened to one of the men and Yeshua says, go go to the the Kohanim, doesn't he say go go directly to the Kohanim? Don't bother telling yeah. anybody go Zara. to the For Zara. Is this possibly why? So that they could be testifying the Sanhedrin and the, all the authorities like beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. That makes a whole lot more sense too, you know, just putting all these uh these little dots together on that because he did this a lot about, you know, don't go around telling other people you know, Hashem has revealed this to you. This is good for you and all these kinds of things. And it's not so much about trying to testify to other people uh, as as we would think, you know, like if, if Mashiach is doing all these miracles, it's like, oh, yeah, he healed this person. Oh, yeah, he healed that person. Well, remember, it's not really the signs that are going to prove who he is, because that's the same thing with Moshe Rabbeinu, is that it wasn't that he came and gave these miraculous signs. It was actually because... He said the words, Pakot Pakoti, and the uh, the Sanhedrin of that time were actually the ones that uh, said, you know, he was supposed to say these words. When the Redeemer comes to bring you out of Mitzrayim, he's going to say two words, and that's how you're going to know it's him. You know, so it was really the word that was the testimony as opposed to the signs. Very good. Well, you know, so, that uh, reminds me... Uh, <laughs> Rumination, why are the flawed people of scripture referred to as righteous? Yeah. And then in Hebrews 5, for every Kohen Gadol taken from among men is appointed to act on people's behalf with regard to things concerning God, to offer gifts and offerings for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and with those who go astray, since he too is subject to weakness. Your point about prayer. Yeah, which which is a seemingly contradiction when in fact it isn't. Right. Also, because of this weakness, he has to offer offerings for his own sins 
as well as those of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself. Rather, he is called by God, just as Aharon was. So neither did the Mashiach glorify himself to become Kohen Gadol. Rather, it was the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Also, he says in another place, from the Tanakh, you are a Kohen forever to be compared with Melchizedek. During Yeshua's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, crying aloud and shedding tears to the one <laughs> to the one who had the power to deliver him from death. And he was heard because of his godliness, even though he was the son, he learned obedience through his sufferings. And after he had been brought to the goal, he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who obey him. Since he had been proclaimed by God as a Kohen Gadol to be compared with Melchizedek. We have much to say about this subject, but it is hard to explain because you have become sluggish in your understanding. For although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the very first principle, principles of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a baby without experience in applying the word without righteousness, about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by continuous exercise to distinguish good from evil. Amen. Yeah, at, at the end there, it seems like it's a, a rebuke. But rather, it's an exhortation. You need to move on. You need to mature. Yeah, so uh, the other thing to think about, to, or the other question that came up on the chat was, what if there's no Sanhedrin? So, Leah, can you expand more on uh, what you're asking? Because technically there was, but technically there wasn't a Sanhedrin. I think what I'm talking about is like right now. There isn't a Sanhedrin now. So when the Mashiach comes for the second time, what then? Okay, so that's the significance of Eliyahu. Why he has to come. He's he's the one who's going to herald, set up everything. Actually, uh, there's many different ways that it's really uh, talked about. But uh, re-establishing re a Sanhedrin is, is something that's going to have to happen. You know, and when the temple gets built and all that, all that, all those different pieces, but it's really more about, you know, everything being reestablished through, you know, the prophet Eliyahu. So when he comes to show up, you know, he's going to really turn everyone's hearts back and really bring us all back to the Torah so that we can be in the right framework and uh, how that's all going to work together with the arrival of the Mashiach. I mean, that's. Hopefully that answers the question. It's just going to be a lot of different things, but Eliyahu is one of the major factors in that, and he will actually be the attested prophet that will be able to reveal everything. And that would fall in to what we read on page 155 that says uh, a prophet and his sign are considered as two witnesses. So in the, the book of Revelation, Eliyahu and Moshe make an appearance and yeah. well it says two witnesses but from everything like because all the the miracles they do are the same miracles of Eliyahu and Moshe 
Um, yeah, but many making appearance together is that in order to prepare the way for the Messiah? Yeah. Because they get killed and displayed. Right. To add, Emmett, about the the authority of the the, the Messiah of the Sanhedrin, the sages say that even like David had all the, the, he had beautiful eyes, the authority of the Sanhedrin. So Mashiach really doesn't even need the Sanhedrin there. He's the one that's actually going to reestablish the Sanhedrin. And he has the whole authority himself to do these things, even without Eliyahu, even though Eliyahu will always be coming. Right. Just an opinion there. Yeah, because there's a, a, there's a whole nother aspect too of the Yetzahara and the spirit of impurity being banished from the land that's going to happen so that all the minds of the world, all the, the minds of mankind in general will actually be open and receptive to understand everything to where it'll be not only that there has to be the prophet, there has to be the sign and all that, but we and our minds are going to be brought to that state of knowledge and awareness as well. This is what we say in the Elenu actually. So there's going to be a lot of different things coming together, like I was mentioning before, that's actually going to bring that to fruition in a beautiful way. And it's one of those things, just like we, uh, we read in the later part of Sanhedrin, like, what's it going to be like for the final redemption? You know, like, is it going to be Mashiach coming on a donkey? Is he going to be son of the clouds? You know, what's going to be the difference between the Messianic era and our current era? you know, and it's Israel not being subject to other nations or, you know, what, what else is going to happen? And it's like, we really won't know these things until they actually occur, which is a whole nother thing about when Yeshua shows up, this was some of those commentaries being answered. And so there was still a lot of like, well, what is this supposed to be? How is this supposed to look? What is it supposed to look like? Because, you know, you have the whole aspect of Yeshua has really been Yosef at the time. You know, this this wasn't been David yet, you know. And so there's a, a whole nother aspect of, you know, does everybody know about Mashiach ben Yosef? How, according to the scripture, he's supposed to die, you know. And if he's supposed to die, then why are people looking at him to bring the spiritual revolution so that they can be freed, you know, from their enemy? It's like, well, he's going to die. His, his quote-unquote agenda and mission is going to fail, you know? And so you start to study the two Mashiachs, and then you find the information that actually rectifies that. And you can also understand why we're in a two-part redemption, which you can say it's three parts, it's four parts, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, because there's commentary for that too, <laughs> you know? Does that make sense, Leah? I know that was a lot of extra information, but <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just trying to figure out how the pieces fit together from from like you know when we read in Revelation and, and then when we see uh, the Jewish sources and and trying to figure out how it all is supposed to fit together so that we're not caught unaware, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think just like what we mentioned earlier today in the, in the drosh of the Second Timothy passage of just really working and studying to show ourselves approved, you know, really wrestling and grappling with the scripture, grappling with the commentaries, 
that's going to put us in the best position because that way we're not so narrow minded in our thinking to where we'll miss, you know, valuable pieces. We'll be able to take the whole thing and really work with it, you know, pray to Hashem about it, study with your uh, community like we're doing now, you know, even just a few ideas that we've uh, spoken of as, in regards to this particular point. You know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's there's way more stuff. There's sources none of us are thinking about right now that exist that will bring more illumination to that point. But we won't know it if we don't go out there and study. Because as we find out, you're just going through the partiot and you're finding answers to stuff that are on the other side of the Torah. You know, we're in the first part of Bereshit, but commentary from Deuteronomy is happening right now. It, you know, and so it's just kind of like you just got to stay in the circle, stay in the in the uh, the Yom Tovin. You learn through preparing for the Yom Tovin things about the Mashiach, you know, and it's just like I'm studying Hanukkah and this is coming up, you know, or <laughs> I'm studying the 10th of Tibet and then I find this information out. You know, that's how it works, because the moment we think we know it all is when we don't. And when you get to a point of knowing it all, Hashem goes, okay, well, this is your world now. I'm out. Deuces. Because Hashem says, I and an arrogant person, we don't, we don't inhabit the same space. So you can have it. I'll do another Zoom Zoom and just go away. But those of us who just crouch down under the Torah, we study, we keep learning, we keep praying. We keep doing acts of kindness because that's another thing. Through our actions, Hashem mm -hmm. also reveals Torah insights to us. Amen. You know, uh, one of the yeah, things Moshe said to me earlier. Off the hook, man. <laughs> one of the things Mazel said to me when I got home, she was like, Ezra cannot fathom how your voice was in the room, but you weren't. And I was like, oh, that's such a download about the Mashiach. That's like all this stuff that we were talking about. How do I hear the voice of Mashiach? Da, 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 da. You know, Mashiach said I wouldn't leave you orphans, but yet he did, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's, that speaks pun intended volumes. So, you know, it literally comes out in your life situations. Like, and again, that's why another reason why I dwelled so much on being a simple Jew, being a wholesome person. Like, I don't think we know the depths of the results from that particular aspect alone. Because it's one thing to study a bunch of sources and instantly recall them. But when you're all around in your life looking for Hashem, diligently searching, asking him to purify your heart and your mind, he's going to highlight things that you're just, you're, you're going to be like, right here, really? And it seems like, yeah, right here, really. That's that's how we do it. <laughs> so that's oh, why I really stress those points, you know. I mean, it's it's it sounds simple, it sounds trivial, but it is so, so deep. You know, when you were talking about how everybody's been going through it and that we all gotta hang on and all that kind of thing, it has been, I always tell a mazel last week, it has been crazy around our house i'm not kidding all kind of crazy but this week on wednesday i was uh god bless me tremendously with my very first tricare client i see okay. him on Wednesday. 
Risotto. That starts the roles going forward for us to be able to, you know, get the money together to go to Texas. Second is we we've been straight up struggling financially too. And my mom's car has chosen this time to start doing weird stuff. Like she'd park it, come inside, and all of a sudden her taillights come on. We're like, what? It's weird. Okay. She last night, just before Shabbat, was given a, a very large sum of money she was not expecting. And we're just like amen god is in control so he you're right he has seen how we're handling the hard things that we've been going through and he's starting to open up a little bit of doors here and we're sitting here floored just like wow okay okay cool we're 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 starting to understand some things a little better so amen amen yeah just and talking to people you'd be amazed at what people are dealing with you know and to know that on the surface, you've just been seeing them function, you know, like, oh, yeah, they're, they're showing up, they're doing this, they're going to work. Oh, yeah, it's cool. All right, book show. And it's like, man, it's a war zone. <laughs> you know, how are they even standing, much less walking, you know? We, we had a big, a big <laughs> hullabaloo here because when you got three teenagers in a house as a single mom, oy vey, you know, and, yeah. and I'm out. <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> but you know and then i add on top of that two of them have autism all three of them have adhd and one of them was recently diagnosed with schizophrenia holy crap we've had crazy going on so you know the thing is is that you know even in all of that god made uh gave us mercy in in fixing somebody's medication so that they can not be as off the hook as they've been, you know, because we need some people to be actually be on the hook sometimes, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so I mean, I, you know, but it, God used all of that to test our reactions to people. You know, the whole part about Hesed is the kindness you show your family. That was totally the lesson God was showing us last week, this week, keep going, you know? I mean, yeah. So, <clears throat> continuing on in handbook, uh, now to get to the uh, section about the validity of the prophets. So, 813 really picks up with this. Uh, it says, the sign provided by a prophet does not necessarily have to be miraculous violation of the laws of nature so this is kind of speaking to what georgia was mentioning earlier like is it that we is it that if they prophesy something good is that true or does it have to come to pass or not come to pass in order for it to be true or is it that they prophesy something negative and it comes to pass or not comes to pass you know kind of thing so this really begins that uh dialogue on this so it says it is sufficient for a prophet to verify his mission by accurately predicting a future event. So to some extent, that could be a level of validity as if they predict a future event and it happens. Yeah, it doesn't even need a sign, it's, eh? Huh? It doesn't, it doesn't even have to be a real, it's saying it doesn't even have to be a supernatural sign or anything. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was reading that right before you got into that. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Come on, right? Well, what does Yeshua say? Uh, an adulterous and evil generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be oh, given that's it. Good. That's a good connection. Except wow. for the Navi Yona. For as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Actually, an awesome connection, bro. Good night. You okay over there, man? <laughs> I'm just <Okay>. elevated. <laughs> Dude, seriously, come All on. Right. <laughs> Go, Tom. Of course. <laughs> okay, so says, it is thus written, you may ask yourselves, how can we know the word was not spoken by God? If the prophet speaks in God's name, but his words does not come true, then that word was not spoken by God. The prophet has declared it falsely. Devarim 18, 21 and verse 22. See, this is the other oh. thing. So, like I said, like when you want to study topics like this, where is it in the Torah portions? And right now we're in Parsha Toldot and Bereshit. And it's like, well, yeah, go to Parsha Shoftim and Devarim. <laughs> And, and when you start studying from there, it, it gives you the root system so that your plant can sprout up and bring out all these beautiful uh, insights and commentaries. So it says from this, the converse can also be learned. A prophecy that does come true is authentic. So therefore, which again, I mentioned in the chat that I would say don't really look at it as is it a good prophecy or a bad prophecy actually go beyond that to did it come true or not and then use that as your next indicator well was he prophesying doom or was he prophesying good you know and things like that because that question I would Jeremiah ask is, yeah. uh, what is the mark of a true Nevi'im go for it um what he says doesn't happen. And this is in reference to uh, Gavura, because Hashem would rather bring Hased than Gavura. Hashem would and, rather bring Hased. And this is a major theme in the Tanakh. It's the one that should be studied. I think it tends to be lacking with some, that it's redemption since Gandhi done. You know, it's, you know, it's interesting that Bilam predicts the Mashiach yeah. And so he is a true prophet. Yeah. That, what was that yeah, crazy thing that you said about him? Like uh, if someone's predicting Shiak, they're like a sorcerer or something. <laughs> oh. You, well, you were reading commentary earlier. Uh, I yeah. couldn't speak because I was frozen. Yeah. Yeah. What was I reading? No, I, that was crazy. Because I was just like, of course, that, that's why Belam was the one who was able to be the parsha that speaks about the Mashiach, because that's who he was. You know, this is why it wouldn't be necessarily like a, like an Isaiah or a Jeremiah that would be so explicit and be like, look, here is the Mashiach. Exactly. Yeah, that was I think that was in the Midrash I was just reading. Oh my gosh, I closed the book. <laughs> oh, well. 
anyway, you had a beautiful insight to that. And I was just going to uh, say that's another thing to put on the table with all that we're talking about with the prophets. Yeah. So 814 says, therefore, if a person who is worthy of prophecy accurately predicts a future event, he is assumed to be a, pro a true prophet. However, if even the most minor detail of his prophecy fails to occur as predicted, then his prophecy is definitely false. This is why it's a good practice for us to read directly from the text, you know, when we're sharing things, because not that we're trying to prophesy or anything, but when we're uh, when we're giving over discourses and things like that, we want to make sure that even the the minor details, you know, are in place, because here's the other thing later. in, uh, I think it's this book or the second book. It actually talks about the level of Israel, like everybody was a prophet during the time of the temple, especially during Shlomo's temple time, like the whole nation was considered prophets. And even before that, at Mount Sinai, the whole nation was considered prophets. So, you know, you have this whole uh, aspect of being faithful in the little things, because when the big things happen, like, you know, the restoration of the temple, and we all go to this elevated level, if we're so used to being accurate, even in the details, which is another shout out to Halakha, that it really gets down into the details of things, then when the future happens, like we're already going to be so used to being minute and uh, detailed and things like that. So we got some right here. So what, so what makes a prophet worthy? What makes a prophet worthy? Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. That's directly from Isaac. So, yeah, that's the other thing to always think about, too, is over uh, like a slam dunk, you know, to how you want to view a person who's considering themselves a prophet. It's like, can you uh, read Deuteronomy 13 for me, please? You know, and depending on how they're reacting or their takeaway from that, you know, would also be an indicator. So going on, it says in 815, this, however, is only true if the prophet predicts something good or neutral. So this prediction, it has to be something good or neutral. And it says, in being tested, a prophet, therefore, will predict something good, since if such a prophecy is truly from God, then it is irrevocable. So then it says, it is thus written, when a prophet predicts peace and his prophecy comes true, then it shall be known that God has sent that prophet, Jeremiah 28, 9. So this is the other cool thing about why the Mashiach said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Oh, nice. So um, I have something to add from uh, Sinead Lukot. What, what does that mean? What does that in, mean? In other words. The fact that he said that. Yeah, the fact that, that he said that is going along with the lines that says, when a prophet predicts shalom, his prophecy comes true then it shall be known that God has sent that prophet. 
So, in other words, this <laughs> whole point is talking about prophesying good, prophesying things that are neutral, you know, to say that, <laughs> not saying that Yeshua was necessarily wrong in anything, but it was just like, don't, don't minimize and limit your thinking to uh, these certain points. I think you were talking about this earlier uh, between you and Yosef about the way the anti-missionaries like to pick apart things and disregard certain pieces of information and be like, yeah, see, this is not the guy because so-and-so. But just saying Yeshua is in an interesting category alone by the statement of, I came to, I didn't come to bring peace. So if you want to look at him in a narrow-minded state of, uh, yeah, then what he said didn't come true. So therefore he can't be a prophet. Therefore he can't be the Mashiach. Like, in other words, this point is validating, you know, or it's uh, it's keeping us at a point to where we can't just throw Yeshua out. That could almost go along with all of Matthew 24 completely. Right. Yeah. And so when they say, oh, look, he didn't fulfill those things. Well, those are negative things. Exactly. Right? That's that's what and I was so going to say. Like I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to tag on that because I'm just trying to understand so that means because what he said, it wasn't something everybody was expecting, right? And Moshiach is going to bring peace in the world and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then he said, that's not what I'm here for. Right. Mm. Yeah. Which I think okay. is amazing that right. it's explicit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, the footnote says, from Yesode HaTorah 10.4. Tankuma Vayera 13, Yakut Shimoni 2308. Like it's yeah. like super specific. <laughs> so very good. But yeah, uh, then 816 says a prophet is never tested through a prediction of evil. Again, you know. What did you show with all the different things about the the incoming uh, craziness? You know, well, we can't just go with, OK, what he said was going to happen is true. So he's a prophet. Well, what he said didn't happen. So he's not a prophet. You can't do that either. You know, wow. and again, I want to tie this back to the, the open. Go. Yeah. 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 No, I'm just sorry. It just refutes the whole anti-missionary everything. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. all I'm saying. It's yep. crazy. <laughs> so I would go back to eight eleven on page one fifty three. It says God never does anything that might destroy a person's free will. So again, with the Mashiach, it's a free will choice. Like there's nothing outright overt about the Mashiach that's gonna go, oh yeah, hands down, this is him believing it, you know, or oh yeah, hands down, go ahead and reject it. You know, because that's how free will works is that whatever perspective people may have, there's just enough to cleave to him as there is enough to walk away from him. You know, and we saw how this played out with Ruth, uh, with uh, her and Naomi versus Orpa. It's the same Naomi. It's just kind of like, well, is one going to cleave to her? Or, like, are both going to cleave or, you know, and it's interesting to use Naomi because she's considered to be the meaning of her name is a pleasant tree, you know, which the Torah is called a pleasant tree. It's the tree of life. It's good. Grasp a hold of it. There's life. There's fruit there. You know, uh, kind of thing. 
Nice. So, and you can really think about it too, as this is why, you know, the person who came up to Yeshua asking him how to attain eternal life, he said, well, what does the Torah say and how do you interpret it? Because what was the difference between Ruth and Orpah? You know, like one was able to be, both of them were able to be presented with the same situation. One chose to stay and go forward and one chose to walk away. You know, so we have to really know what's going on with ourselves, you know, and it could probably be something. And really the point of what I, what I was just asking is the question is not really to answer it, but to think on it because sometimes questions are better than answers. But um, just to move to the point though, like you could study the people who are rejectors of the Mashiach versus people who are acceptors of the Mashiach. And I'm talking in the truest sense, people who do what we're doing. We're seeking him out constantly. We're, we're in the commentaries. We're not just trying to fabricate the picture of see how much of a Zadik and how much of a Mashiach Yeshua is. But no, like really being honest with it, you know? And so even if you wanted to go that route of like, what's going on in the workings of the mind of a man or, you know, or a woman or a child or whatever, you know, who, who validates or invalidates. And not just Yeshua, by the way, but also Moshe Rabbeinu, Yehoshua ben Nun, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Because, you know, people refute these individuals just as much, if not more. There's a whole wave of the world that's like, yeah, you know that uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Thank the Lord that we don't do that anymore. It's good reading, though. And that's not necessarily just people from Rome. Yeah. <laughs> that's people from the nations. <laughs> you know, that's people who don't even believe in God. You know, it's just kind of like, it's not so one-sided. That's the thing, Emeb. What does that really show you, though? Because me and my Huvruta were back and forth about this all the time. And we started this train of thought back on the rumination, is Mashiach divine? And that is people are given over to extremes. Each camp defines itself by their opposition to the other. We cannot be like that at all. We have to avoid that. Our perspective must be balanced. Our study must be balanced. We cannot be given over to the extremes of even the opinions we read in the commentaries. We still need to be careful. We have to weigh them against opinions of others. This is what the sages did. Yeah, they had their perspectives, but what did they do when they took leave of each other at the end of the day? Blessings be upon you. Peace be upon you. They left in shalom, completeness. This is what they did. This is what we need to do. Amen. Preach. <laughs> Man. So I can't stress that one enough, you know. Let's see if I can find it real quick. This is what I. Uh, reference and alluded to, but I didn't actually read it to everybody uh, verbatim. Again, this is Master Plan chapter uh, 64, page 271. It says, Father and Son, teacher and student who seem like enemies locked in combat in the house of study finally leave it arm in arm the best of friends. 
citing the Talmud. And, and again, you know, you made the statement of each uh, party or each camp defines itself by the opposition to the other party. To know that everything that you believe and the foundation of what you walk in is all predicated off of a disagreement. I don't want to, I, I mean, I would not recommend that. You know, no. like to anybody. You're on uh, shaky ground in that it. case. You're on shaky ground in that yeah. case. You're not you're not building your house upon the rock, which is the Torah. Right. And it's amazing too because the Torah was birthed out of one nation under God who uh who really <laughs> were the people that embraced it, you know, and was like, I don't even know what it says. I don't even know what the arguments are to it. You know, because even the Torah itself says, well, I was presented to the Ishmaelites. I was presented to the, the Edomites. And neither one of them were like, nope, we're out. You know, Parsha Vizota Baraka has commentaries that talks about all the nations rejecting the Torah because through their rejection and Israel's acceptance, the tables are going to turn one day. And then that way the nations can be brought back in because they had a previous encounter with the Torah, which oh, yeah. I think it's amazing that in Romans, it says that the people who have rejected the Mashiach, you know, because of their rejection, we now have the ability to accept him, you know, because had, had oh. he been embraced, we all know how this story would have ended. Would have ended the same way it would have ended if Moshe Rabbeinu was able to walk across the state line of Israel, <laughs> the border of the of the Holy Land. It would have been over. You know? Yeah, it would have been Olam Haba. Yeah. yeah. Matt, it's interesting because all of the nations, they only had one reason why they didn't want the Torah. Oh, get you, yeah. son. And we get so caught up on this one thing that Yeshua did or that he didn't do. Now he's totally not good. Wow. Uh, good night. <laughs> Since we're on this kind of point, I have something from Shnei Lukot. Uh, third volume, page 919 on Parashah Korach, since we're talking about prophets. Um, the Torah is called light because it enlightens. It is also called esh, fire. Just as one benefits from its warmth when keeping a certain distance from it, but becomes burned when approaching too closely. So it is with the secrets of the Torah. If someone wow. approaches too closely to the temple, over and beyond what his station in life entitles him to, he is liable to be hurt or even killed when he beholds what is not his to behold. We have explained this in connection with the death of the two sons of Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, who were described as having approached the presence of God by Ecris 16.1. The Torah did not choose to say Behe Kribam which would have meant when they offered an offering. The expression the Torah uses indicates that the sons entered an area that was beyond their station in life. As a result, they died. Something similar occurred when the people who wanted to behold God at the Kribriyat, uh, Hateot, Hateoa, 
according to an explanation given in the book of Brit Manuka. We should learn from this that one must not attempt to occupy the position of someone who is greater than oneself in the presence of that personage. You will not be able to maintain such a posture. You are therefore well advised not to abandon your present place. You should remember that the Jewish people number 600,000, and the Kabbalists say that they were 600,000 souls who had originated in the 600,000 letters of the Torah. The spirituality of Torah consists of the souls of Israel, and thus it is appropriate that the generation who received the Torah consisted of 600,000 souls. All subsequent generations and their souls are to be viewed as branches of those 600,000 souls, Romans. Uh, this raises the obvious question of where the souls of the, of the Levites originated, since the number 600,000 has already been used up when the other tribes were counted. Was not the tribe of Levi the choicest of them all? Where did the souls emanate from? I'm kind of going Melchizedek here, because after reading Hebrews 6, or actually Hebrews 5, So you remember that the first of the 13 principles used for exegesis of the Torah is the principle of kolel uh, uparet. In our daily recitation of these 13 principles, this one is listed as number four. We are told there that kolel, the general rule, cannot include anything which has not been alluded to in the description of the parrot. The detailed example of what is meant by kolel it's common knowledge that these 13 principles are not something conjured up by human intelligence, but they are principles by which God operates both in areas visible to us, i.e. Uh, Negelah, and in domains that are completely hidden from us, uh, Nistar. The overriding rule to remember is that Kalel whole does not contain anything which is totally foreign to the Peret, the part. When it is part of the Peret, it is Negelah, revealed, visible, whereas when it is part of the Kolel, it may remain hidden, invisible to our eyes or faculties. Nice. <clears throat> so, Shanae Lukota Brie, what were you reading from? Volume 3, pages one, uh, 919 and 920 from Parashah Korach that's around the subject of prophets and their validity. Nice. All right. Uh, next point here is... Uh, let's go back to 816, because I read the first sentence, but uh, the whole thing together, it says, a prophet is never tested through a prediction of evil. It is always possible for such evil to be averted by repentance and prayer. And that was the other thing that I was mentioning too, that, you know, even if the prophet prophesies doom and it doesn't happen or it happens, but in a more uh, lessened faction, that's because repentance and prayer sometimes doesn't completely nullify, you know, the impending destruction or punishment, but it can decrease it which is the other thing to take into account with Revelation. We do not necessarily have to have horse-sized hornets <laughs> open up from a pit and fly around and, and uh, wreak havoc on the earth. 
However, a swarm of bees, killer bees, you know, doing that could fulfill that particular prophecy. And we all know there's been news reports of swarms of bees, killer bees or killer hornets, murder hornets, as some people like to call them. So did that take care of that prophecy? Who knows? But just saying that's something to be aware of, too. Uh, the next thing is 817. Sin can also prevent a good promise from coming true. Ho, 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 ho. I thought Hashem promised something and I'm going to get it. It's like, well, we know as humans, uh, if our children, we promise them something and it's like, all right, yeah, we're going to do it. But then if they step out of line, it's like, well, you were getting ice cream, but now you're not. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing with Hashem. We can actually tear up our own good uh, decrees and good promises that could have been heading our way. Blessings in disguise, if you will. We could actually, by our own actions, rip those out of our own hand. That is scary. That's uh, mind-blowing. That's tragic. Sad. I mean, all the above. But that literally is reality. And it's not actually until you get into the second volume and read the chapter on reward and punishment that chapter will blow you away at how intense rewards are as well as punishments so this is just kind of a precursor to a whole chapter that's taught on in the second book <clears throat> uh the next thing is it says, however, this only occurs when the promise is made to an individual. So if Hashem make, is making personal promises to individuals, those can be taken away. But it says when a prophet is being tested, if he is a true prophet, then any good prediction he makes must come true. So that's a pretty big one there. Uh, 818, although it is possible that a prophet's prediction may be a lucky guess, we are still commanded to accept him as a prophet and obey him if he is otherwise worthy of prophet, prophecy. We obey a prophet not because we have no doubt of the veracity of his words, but because we're commanded to heed him if certain conditions are fulfilled. This is why I think it's interesting that there's a such thing called the Haftarah cycle that goes along with the Parsha cycle. Because just as much as we're supposed to heed and obey the words of the Torah, we're supposed to do the same thing with the prophets. Uh, it goes on to say this is similar to the commandment that a court of law must believe the testimony of two witnesses even though they have no actual proof that their testimony is true. And Yosef gave a beautiful explanation of that earlier. Uh, 819 says, in all such cases, we can only act or we can act only on the basis of what we can see. So take all the points we just covered and it all is summarized in this. In all those cases, we can only we can act only on the basis of what we see. It is thus written, secret things are for God, 
our Lord, but reveal, but reveal things are for us and our children forever to observe all the words of this Torah. Deuteronomy 29, 28. Which I think is incredible uh, that that's one of the verses that sources that out. Because sometimes when we're listening to people who proclaim to be prophets, we only see a limited amount, you know, of their life. Even the prophets we have, you know, in the Tanakh, we don't know every particular detail about their life. You know, and so speaking to that point, you know, you really just have to go with what you see uh, on these things, because there are some things that we just we won't we won't, won't be able to know. Uh, 820, when a prophet provides a sign to individuals, he must only be accepted by those who witness the sign. So I put in the uh, margin, this is why Yeshua is accepted by those who see him. You know, like the, the people who were actually able to be intimate. Not It wasn't everyone, obviously, because there are some people who encountered him and was like, I'm out. I, I can't do it. And there's actually a, a part in the Gospels that talks about hundreds of people who left him because he gave a hard word. You know? Yochanan. But there's just a whole uh, level there to where, you know, those who witnessed the sign, you know, and this would be one of the people who was healed of Za'arat. You know, and, and he came back to to prostrate himself before Yeshua. Uh, 821. However, for a prophet to be accepted by all Israel, he must produce a sign before the Sanhedrin and be tested by them. And I put in the uh, the margin. So there was not a Sanhedrin since 28 through 30 CE which technically falls before the traditional time frame of Yeshua's ministry. So even if Yeshua was before the, the Sanhedrin that was in place, even though it wasn't the real Sanhedrin, he still couldn't operate in the fullness of this point, which is a big, big mercy for those who don't want to accept and Yeshua and they actually reject him right now because he can still be up for, up for debate on so many levels, and this being one of them, as far as will all Yisrael accept him? So that's a pretty big point right there. Um, 822, if a prophet is examined a number of times, like, you know, Yeshua was, <laughs> and all his predictions are found to come true, it is assumed that he is a true prophet, and he is heeded without further sign it is thus written samuel grew and god was with him letting none of his words go unfulfilled then all israel knew that samuel had been a been established as a prophet of god first samuel 3 18 and verse 19 hold on Yes. Samuel grew and God was with him. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, that's the, the proof they're going on. Yep. So like Yeshua, it says, 
uh, Yeshua grew with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. stature. Wisdom yeah. and stature. Yeah, and God was with him. <laughs> nice. That's a that's a sniper round right there. I like that. I got uh, here's here's another one to your point about a prophet who speaks in the presence of others. Yeah, uh, Yochanan uh, eighteen, starting at verse nineteen. The Kohen Hagadol questioned Yeshua about his Talmudim and about what he taught. Yeshua answered, "I have spoken quite openly to everyone. I have always taught in a synagogue or in the temple." where all Jews meet together, and I have said nothing in secret. So why are you questioning me? Question the ones who heard what I said to them. Look, they know what I said. Wow. How about that for a witness? Why are you asking me all these questions? Why don't you go talk to people who sat in my classes? <laughs> Which is crazy. I mean, from it's one thing he taught in all the synagogues, but like the temple, really? Who holds classes in the temple? <laughs> that's that's not a shot across the broadside, man. That's targeting weapon systems and shields, man. <laughs> okay. What it was was he was accused of. His accusers. His accusers was not Torah observant. His accusers was. wasn't Torah observant, but he was. That's what I you know saying. Yeah, great point. Because uh, this would be the whole reason why he said, you know, you're forsaking, you know, the mitzvot of the Torah for your own traditions, your own personal standard of righteousness and interpretation. That causes Which, the Torah to fall down. Which, by the way, nothing wrong with having those. Nope. However, if you're going to tithe on, I don't know, let's pick something random. Tithe your your uh, potato chips. But you have grapes in your vineyard, or you have wheat in your fields, or you have oil from your olive trees, and you're not tithing that. They were tithing a weed. Yeah, so you know, let's up with that. <laughs> Isn't that Esau who wants to tithe every? He was asking about tithing, tiny little small things that he was eating to impress Yaakov. I think Rashi says something about that. Yeah, I remember when yeah. we were going through the alias with Rashi. He was talking about that tithing. Yeah. Yeah, he was tithing to make it Yaakov see, and you know make Yaakov. That's why Yaakov thought he loved his son. He loved Esau. Esau. The You're same way Esau. Yeah, Esau. Yeah, Esau can love Yaakov. Esau just like he loved Yaakov, but it's not because he had hopes for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that, yeah whole, that whole commentary. Was counting tiny little bits of uh, tithing. Yeah, Esau was going into all these other things that you don't even, the Torah doesn't even tell you to tithe. Yeah. 
which I love yes. that commentary on the par show. That was that was crazy. Yeah, then I thought of uh, nice. I thought of Kane and Hevel. Kane brought of was bringing a Minka offering, and while Hevel mm-hmm. brought the first of his flocks along right. with his Minka offering. And Hashem says to him, you know, Cain gets jealous of Hevel and says, if you do well, won't you be accepted? This is almost as if Yeshua is saying, you can't nullify the Torah by what you're doing. But if you do, you'll be accepted. Right. Which I think it's Parshava Ikra that introduces the different Corbin note. Yeah, and it speaks about the grain offering being like the offering of a poor person, and it can be considered greater than people who bring from the flock or from the herd. You know, like a grain offering can uh, triumph over, you know, bringing a bull. Which I always thought about the widow's might at that particular point. Oh yeah, because the sacrifice hits harder, is what Leah said. Get you some. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this was also in the Musar class. It was the quality of Chesed that is a key point oh, to that yeah. particular Mina as opposed to just having Chesed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, how does see yeah, the Musar to that point? <laughs> I'm like, I was in class. I just wanted Were to you know. I, I, went live. <laughs> I went live in class, but I, I catch the replay. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. That um, reminds I... me, how does a poor person approach the Mishkan? Nice. Now, here in the Tanya from commentaries by the Rabbi Stengsok, he says, the attribute of Hasid does not necessarily denote altruism or any bestowed of good as is commonly conceived, the essence of hesed is expansion and flow, a movement from the inside out. Its nature is to be absolutely gratuitous without taking into account the capacity of the recipient. For God is great and his greatness is unfathomed. And therefore he also bestows life and acts an existence from nothingness and countless worlds and creations. The expansive flow from the one who is infinitely great is likewise infinite, creating and sustaining worlds without limits, since the nature of the which is good is to bestow good. So that's what Hasid is, pretty much. Is the, this the flow from Hashem? Once he stopped the flow, everything stops. Yeah. Which was interesting in our uh, Drosh notes on the Hanukkah from uh, the Hanukkah insight from 70 Faces was talking about the stream, the river uh, that flows through the Brakot uh, for lighting the Hanukkah. I mean, that's that's amazing, which means as we're mm-hmm. saying the blessing for lighting the Hanukkah, there's no limit to the light that we can cause to flow into the world. 
which mm, goes yeah. back to really the miracle. Why was the oil unlimited? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was coming from Hashem. It was Hashem's chesed. You know, mm. and it's interesting too as we're uh, doing the Barik Shemay, which is blessed is the name for the uh, the Torah service during uh, Shacharit that we talk about Hashem is generous. Ruk Hashem. Thanks for being uh, on, Yosef. Yeah. Uh, but we talk, <laughs> we talk about how Hashem is generous and his, his kindness and his truth. You know, so just uh, having no regard for the limit or the capacity of the person who's the recipient is amazing. You know, yeah. so much kindness. You know, and we even we even know that those who are forgiven of much, they love much. You know, mm-hmm. yes. I'm reminded how the poor person and the Mishkan in the wilderness approaches Hashem. He approaches Hashem from a place of humility when he brings his offering. In other words, his heart is in the right place. His kavana is true to the purpose for which he is approaching Hashem in the first place. If it were any other way, he would be consumed. While yeah. the rich tend to be arrogant. You know, they say, oh, I don't have need of Hashem. I'm just bringing this because I have to. Well, then you should not bring an offering at all. That was also in the Musar class. Yeah. If you're not going to do a mitzvah with joy, you might want to second think doing the mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I got the Tanya out and from chapter one from Likute Amarim. It has been taught in Nida, the end of chapter 3, an oath is administered to him before birth, warning him, be righteous and be not wicked. Even if the whole world tells you that you are righteous, regard yourself as if you were wicked. This requires to be understood, for it contradicts the Mishnahic dictum of oath chapter 2, and be not wicked in your own estimation. Furthermore, if a man considers himself to be wicked, he will be grieved at heart, and depressed and will not be able to serve God joyfully and with a contented heart. While if he is not perturbed by this self-appraisal, he may lead him, it may lead him to irreverence. God forbid. There's two sides of the coin here. And you can quickly see why Yeshua said, Don't call anyone a Russian. Yeah, don't. Yeah. Two-edged sword. Two-edged sword. <laughs> Uh, Hebrews. Yep. That's for the, over here. for the word of God is quick and powerful to discerning the thoughts to separate sinew from bone. That is temple language of the Corban note right there. Be very aware when you bring your offering to Hashem. Your Kavana. I'm not kidding, man. Look at it. If you need not look any further than Nadav and Avihu. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Couple more points here. Uh, 823 it says if an established prophet testifies that another is true, is a true prophet, the latter is accepted without any further test. And again, John 1, verse 15. 
Moshe thus testified regarding Yehoshua. <laughs> and it says, Yehoshua was accepted by all Yisrael as a prophet before providing a sign or a miracle. What was Joseph just asking about Yeshua earlier in the call? So when was Yeshua's miracle? When was his sign? <laughs> and he was already accepted before that. Okay. Good night. Like, don't go there. <laughs> Man. Okay. So, 824. And this is Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1. I'm reading in Chapter 8. Uh, it says, once an individual is established as a prophet, he must be accepted and obeyed without any further test. As long as he remains worthy of prophecy, it is forbidden to suspect him of being fraudulent. It is forbidden unduly to test a prophet. Wow. I'm looking at the Gospels in a whole nother light now. <laughs> <laughs> the Torah thus states you shall not test God your Lord as you tried him at Mara Deuteronomy 6 16 so wait if you're testing the prophet you're testing Hashem but the word comes from and it says here in the Bazaar because the word comes from Hashem and it says in the Bazaar Yeshua is going to be done thousand angels come and take you he said, you don't test your God. You know what I'm saying? The temptation that time brought before Yeshua about casting himself off the pinnacle and because Hashem says, you won't be able to dash your stone against the rock. And Yeshua was saying, you don't test the Lord your God. Yeah. So the time oh. is interesting because he was unduly testing Mashiach and he did it three times. Oh boy. Good night. Man. And that's considered to be the guardian angel of Esau. That Yaakov wrestled with. Yeah. Who wouldn't tell him his name because it changes its name all the time. It changes its game up to try and throw you off every single time. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> be harmless as uh be uh as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. Yeah. Okay. So now that we know testing the prophets is testing a shim, that's ridiculous. Okay. It was at Mara that the Israelites questioned Moshe's authority as a prophet, asking. Is God among us or not? So, uh, <laughs> Exodus 17, 7. Stop it. Okay. So when the people were like, Hashem, where are you? And Shem was like, you really? You don't believe in Moshe? Oh, I'm out. What, what, what? And it's just like, wait, we're talking about Hashem. And Shem's like, yeah, I'm talking about Moshe. <laughs> Bruh, are y'all hearing this? This is outrageous. <laughs> You've been sitting at Sinai for a whole year building a Mishkan, and when it's time to move out, you want to stay here? And you wonder that I'm not with you? 
can reread that statement again. That's outrageous. It was at Mara, which, by the way, the root of Miriam, the mother of Moshe, according to the Medrash, because if it wasn't for Miriam, Moshe wouldn't have been born. She was the one who told her Abba and Ima, hey, uh, y'all might want to reconsider your divorce because since y'all divorced, everybody else did, and therefore no Jews are going to come into the world. And then the mother of Yeshua, her name was Miriam. And so anyway, Joseph wasn't willing to put her away to make her a public spectacle. Get you some. How often do we not want to leave behind our bitterness? And then let us Leia. not forget the sister of Moshe, whose name was also Miriam. Yeah. Make against Moshe, Numbers 12. Yes, she did. You Which know, was her speaking happened, against Hashem, pretty much. As she, what happened to her? She was put Zara. outside the camp. And I'm not talking about the perimeter of the Levites surrounding the actual temple, the court. Of yeah, because that was her camp. Outside of camp. the tribes, outside the Makane. She had a outside. double exile. Yeah. Yes. Seven days. You count them. Seven days, man. Good night. Okay, so it was at Mara that the Israelites questioned Moshe's authority as a prophet, asking, is God among us or not? Exodus 17, 7. Are we doing? It says in 8.25, a prophet is forbidden to disregard his own prophecy. <laughs> well, I don't know, Hashem. Did you did you say? I mean, did you really say Hashem? Yeah. Then everyone would disregard it. Good night. We would have never got Isaiah 53 if this, <laughs> if this wasn't here. Okay, anyway. The, the thing is we have to remember that prophecy emanates from the world of Atilut. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, the same as every other person. Okay, so a prophet is forbidden to disregard his own prophecy the same as every other person. So not only the prophet himself, but everyone who hears the prophet, they're not allowed to disregard their words. Again, I mentioned the Haftarah portions. Uh, that's why those are significant. So then it goes on to say, uh, similarly, it is forbidden for a prophet to withhold a public message entrusted to him by Hashem. Like what Jonah tried to do? Like what Jonah tried to do is what Mazel just said. Did he hold it? Good night. <laughs> Those kinds of things get you eaten by fish. <laughs> you become food for the fishes. <laughs> Sorry, a little mafia joke. Okay, anyway. Oh, man, he's watching The Godfather too much, man. <laughs> you listen here. You don't, know. you don't bring shame on the family. Yo. You go never, prophesy. Never, ever sleep against the family again unless you sleep with the bitches. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Gotta have a little fun while you study the tour. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good night. 
Kaboom. That's where they get it from. Okay. <laughs> Sleeping with the fishes. Okay. <laughs> Uncle Lefty. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> focus. Okay. If a prophet does either, he is worthy of death. You wonder why Jonah considered himself like, man, I'm dead. Like, I'm out. That's why no prophet ever wanted to be a prophet, as Zakin just mentioned. I mean, you think about the weight of the office, right? Hashem is going to speak to you. You have to be like in a state prepared for this. And then not only when he speaks to you, you have to formulate it so that you can speak it because you're not Moshe. So you don't get to speak it verbatim. You know, prophets had to have dreams or visions. They had to have suspended physical faculty in order to receive their prophecy. Then when they came back, you know, whether it was they fainted and they woke up or they were sleeping and had a dream when they when they aroused back to consciousness, then they have to go, OK, here's what Hashem said and then speak it. So you think about the pressure of this, right? Like, I just woke up. I'm trying to figure out which way is up right now. And it's like, well, you have a message and you better speak it because if not, you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't want to be comfortable calling myself a prophet. I know what 5 a.m. feels like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, alarm clock goes off. It's like, man, it ain't time for Moneyani right now. Okay. So. I'm eight. no good to anybody without my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, 826, it is forbidden to prophesy falsely. Mm. This is also, or this is included in the commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Exodus 20, 13. In the margin, I wrote top 10. <laughs> Eight, oh, what you got, Shomo? What you got? Oh, man. By Ecrit 1914, you shall not curse to death, neither. Before the blind place a stumbling block, but you shall fear Hashem your God. I am Hashem. Ooh. There's that. Yeah, all right over there, young man. Okay, so it goes on to say 827. An individual who falsely claims to have received a message from God is worthy of capital punishment. The same is true, even if he repeats another's true prophecy as if it were his own. So side note, you can't do a false prophecy and you can't steal somebody else's prophecy and claim it as your own. Both of those bring the death penalty. Talk about plagiarism. <laughs> wow. Woo, boy. And the parashim and ascetic key, I think it sounds like, based on what that says, they tried to use that against Yeshua. Yep. And their kangaroo court, unfortunately. Yep. Okay. So God does said, if a prophet speaks without authority in my name, when I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. Deuteronomy 18.20. Now, did not Yeshua say, I come in the name of the one who sent me? I come in my father's name. I only speak what my father in heaven it tells me. I only do what he tell, shows me to do. 
So therefore, if we think anything that Yeshua did is out of line, yeah, about that. Dot, dot, dot. <clears throat> so, 828. A person cannot be judged as a false prophet unless he is otherwise worthy of prophet, prophecy. So you can't just call people false prophets unless you know for a fact that they should be a prophet. They they have the ability to, they have all the uh, the rights. Yeah, unless they're worthy of prophecy. A false prophet would be a person who steals other people's prophecies or they say things in the name of Hashem that Hashem did not tell them they could say. Right. So Mazel's bringing up a very good question. Okay, so people who call themselves prophets these days, you know, well, she's not really talking about that particular point. But just as far as the mentality of, you know, who do we call false prophets? Like, we can't just go up to random people and be like, oh, well, you're a false prophet, you know, because we see someone prophesying or, or thinking that they're prophesying and all this kind of stuff. Well, there is prereqs to being a prophet. So prophet would be a pronoun. Let me see here. You can't be a bad massage therapist unless you're first massage therapist. You can't be a bad massage therapist unless you're first a massage therapist. You can't be a false prophet unless you're a first a prophet. Here we go. This is on page 88. Uh, it's 622. These are 10 steps through which one must prepare himself before he can attain divine inspiration. And it says... Trying to read the footnote here. Although there are many variant readings, we follow a, that of a Bodhisattva 20B. Oh. There you go. Some of Bodhisattva. Anyway, uh, it says these 10 steps are, these are the prerequisites before a person can really consider themselves a prophet. <laughs> Number one, constant study and observance of the teachings of the Torah. Number two, scrupulous care not to violate a single law. Number three, constant diligence to fulfill every mitzvah. Number four, living completely free of sin in thought and in deed. Number five, avoiding even the permissible when it may lead to the wrong. Number six, purifying oneself of all sin, both past and present. Number seven, Dedication to God far beyond the call of the law. Number eight, absolute negation of the self. Number nine, loving God so much as to dread all sin and evil. And number 10, total negation of the worldly. So this by default just makes me think, instead of calling people false prophets who consider themselves prophets today, they're not even worthy of that title. You know, because as we read here, you can't say a, a person is a false prophet. At least they can't be judged that way. 
uh, unless they're worthy of prophecy, which would mean they have to fit the bill for these 10 prereqs that we just mentioned. So really, what would you call those people? I mean, well, other than being crazy or liars, uh, I don't really know what else to say. The prophet is such a title. Yeah. So at that point, prophet is know, such a title. You, just, you don't even even give them the clout. The you clout. Say you're a false prophet. You just go, thank you, and then that's it. You shake your head. I mean, don't even yeah. acknowledge. Well, yeah, because there is that. You don't have if if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Don't them. Not you know, you can Robertson. can do that too. Okay. However, one should not claim to have received a message from God, even as a jest, since it resembles false prophecy. Well, that and saying the Lord's name in vain. And that fits as saying the Lord's name in vain, as brought down by Mazel. And this is what happens when you feed water to a baby. You start drop kicking like the rain. Okay. Anyway, 829, the authority of every prophet is derived only from the Torah. <laughs> Authenticity as a prophet can only come from the Torah. So, therefore, if the Torah is done away with, or if people don't want to observe it or think it's true, then uh, no prophets. Wow. Only Hashem can declare a prophet. Is that why we probably don't have a lot of prophets now? Is that why we don't have a lot of prophets now? Well, age of prophecy has ended. There's a lot of people who think they're prophets. You don't even get the title of prophet, whether you're false or not. Which, by the way, the the era of prophets ended uh, before the story of Purim or with oh, Purim okay. was really the change in guard. That doesn't mean that prophets didn't exist because there were still prophets in the world even until, even through the second temple, uh, there were still prophets. But as far as the era and the age of prophecy, that really changed after the events of Purim. So much so that Hanukkah occurred after Purim, right? So this was actually brought up in this chapter trying to see where it is because the whole thing about hanukkah yeah here it is this is an 812 a public miracle can only take place in the presence of a prophet when a prophet stretches forth his hand or makes another sign he is not causing the miracle to occur, but is merely giving a sign that he has prophetic knowledge that the miracle is about to take place. The death of the last prophets marked the end of public miracles. So the footnote says, this is on page 154, the last such miracle was Purim. See Yoma 29a from Psalms 22.1. The fact that Hanukkah occurred after prophecy had ended was what made it particularly special so just a little side note there okay uh therefore no prophet can contradict a single word of the torah even if he produces a sign or wonder Deuteronomy 13. Wow. 
So 8.30 says, therefore, if a prophet attempts to contradict the Torah in any way, he is not believed, even if he performs the greatest miracles. <laughs> God has warned that such signs may occur in order to test our loyalty to his teachings. Any prophet who contradicts the Torah in any way is assumed to be a false prophet and is judged accordingly. So how will we know Eliyahu is Eliyahu? Well, pretty sure he'll be something like Moshe. And for some reason, if you read the, uh, the commentaries about the sages past, and I don't know if there are stories about this today, but people who Eliyahu has appeared to, I would really ask the question, how did they know it was Eliyahu? You know, because there's something about when Eliyahu appeared to people, maybe it was at the end of his appearance or when he appeared to them, they knew it was him. And in most cases, he was a poor beggar. So... Um, there's the other thing to where you won't really be able to judge by appearance. And even the Mashiach, according to the Messiah text, can even appear as a poor beggar. Uh, and then it says Esau wanted to tithe salt and straws. Sorry, I'm still looking for the exact commentary of Rashi. Uh, look at the verse that talks or look around the verse that talks about game was in his mouth. The trappings and all that part. Okay, uh, Rashi should have the commentary on around there. Okay, uh, it says, any prophet who contradicts the Torah in any way is assumed to be a false prophet and is judged accordingly. The other thing that's going to show about Eliyahu is he's going to be able to resolve Talmudic disputes. I just brought this up as a source to Georgia uh, this past week because we had a beautiful conversation about uh, halakha and things like that and um, opinions and all that kind of stuff and I was telling her that it's actually codified that uh, some of the discussions in the Talmud are left open-ended because we're going to wait till Eliyahu gets here to resolve those so that's going to be another telltale sign of Eliyahu is when he starts bringing resolution to open-ended debates in the Talmud which when the Talmud got put together officially was around the sixth century. And how long has it been that those discussions have been left open to end it? So, I mean, it's going to be outrageously obvious when he gets here because he's going to be on a whole nother level. <laughs> okay, 831. It is only in the Torah that we find divinely inspired authority binding for all times that's huge only in the Torah do you find divinely inspired authority binding for all times because one of the, the different uh, things that we learn about commentaries from later sages and uh, people who commented on the Torah they come up with a lot of different rulings and opinions that are only particular and pertinent to that particular time frame. 
because we know how times change, we know how geographic ge geographical locations change. You know, you can move right now anyway, speaking from a Texan point, you can move to the middle of nowhere. Give it five to ten years, you're in the middle of a metroplex. Like it happens all the time to where it's just like, I used to have to live by halakha of a country person, but now I have to live by the halakha of a city person. I didn't move, <laughs> you know, and so your halakha has to readjust. So Torah's like, well, I'm going to give you something that will not change. It says, with the completion of the Torah, such authority, uh, such authority ceased. And no new law or mitzvah can be introduced prophetically. It is thus written, these are the commandments that God commanded Moshe for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, Leviticus 27, 34. The revelation at Sinai had the power to impose commandments, but no other revelation can. So the reason why we got the 613 mitzvot, and that's it, was because at Mount Sinai, that's the only point in time the revelation came forth to give eternal binding authority. So that's outrageous. Uh. I mean, I don't really know how much more to go through this. This is a really long chapter, and we could be here literally all day, which I don't mind. But uh, <laughs> I was hoping to uh, to finish what I was talking about with Hanukkah and give a little bit more free discussion in case anyone has questions uh, or if anybody needs uh, just any other thing that they have in mind that they wanted to talk about. So let me go ahead and switch back over to 70 Faces complete that point and then let's see where we are from there okay so i was speaking about the blessing for kindling the hanukkah for hanukkah and this is on page 603 from 70 faces and it says according to the arizal it is symbolically significant to establish that the blessing recited before lighting the hanukkah lights consists of exactly 13 words as the blessing would then correspond directly to the 13 attributes of compassion revealed by God to Moshe after the sin of the golden calf. In lighting the Hanukkah candles, the Arizal sought to draw God's compassion and mercy down into the world where it would stream down upon the Jewish people like a waterfall of light. The Roshé Tevot, the first letters of each word, of the three final words of the Arizal's 13-word blessing, which is Lehadlik Ner Hanukkah, which is to light Hanukkah light, forms the word Nachal, which is a stream, inviting us to envision a stream of light and compassion being drawn down or being drawn into the world through the lights of Hanukkah. In Kabbalah, these 13 attributes of compassion are symbolically associated with God's beard, as it were, that according to Kabbalah has 13 corners and flows from the face downwards. 
the mystical beard represents God's compassion descending into this world. 